Hello and welcome to the festive edition of the Club Chimera podcast. My name is Jamie Club, and my intention with this particular show is to answer your questions on self-protection and martial arts. This is the first part of a two-part show. The second will be my end-of-year podcast. Thanks to all those who sent in their questions, which I've really enjoyed answering. Thanks to everyone who listens to this show for your continued support. If you enjoy the content, check out my website, clubchimera.com. Please be sure to listen to the end of this show for my thought on a special Christmas tradition, as well as various notes on upcoming and ongoing Club Chimera martial arts projects. Don't forget to check out our show notes and also to support this podcast by subscribing, sharing and reviewing it on whichever platform you choose. Now, I hope you enjoy our festive show. My first question comes from Paul Church. Paul is the Chief Instructor of Balance, Progressive Martial Arts and Self-Protection Principles. He's a regular contributor on the Club Chimera Martial Arts page, often simply offering great shared content that I happily steal and distribute for the benefit of all my supporters. Thank you, Paul, for your excellent work in pragmatic and forward-thinking martial arts teaching. Paul has asked me for my views on teaching online. My views are quite varied. The topic of online teaching is definitely one I will address in my Bullshit Sioux series of books. If our current era is to be defined as the digital age, then it follows that martial arts will reflect all the features of this time. After all, the average martial artist does not live in a community of other martial artists. Therefore, they are influenced by the norms of greater mainstream society, and the most successful martial arts schools have survived and thrived by adapting to the changing world. Like any course of evolution, adaption should not be mistaken for an automatic raising of standards. For example, a martial arts school might lower the standards of its training in order to accommodate a larger number of students, who would have been otherwise put off by the harder demands of the earlier classes. Nevertheless, the digital age of martial arts training has definitely provided us with, at the very least, the potential for better martial arts training and knowledge than we've ever known. The advantages we are provided by the better technology of our time are fairly difficult to dispute. One of the great advantages can be online teaching. However, the evidence is just not there that online teaching serves as a good substitute for teaching in person. What we see is that martial arts that mainly derive their income from customer students are far keener to adopt the online model than those that largely take their living from creating professionals. It's an important distinction to make. Professional combat sports are driven by the incentive to produce better fighters. Quite simply, the higher the standard of a fighter, the more money everyone directly involved with that fighter makes. Therefore, the industry is pushed to invest in producing better fighters. This isn't the exclusive domain of combat sports, but they're the easiest to examine on an individual basis. We might also look towards the military, the security industry and law enforcement, but other areas where the financial incentive is driven by the need to produce people more efficient in dealing with violence. They aren't readily adopting online training either. I cannot foresee a problem with online learning in general if the purpose is for a student to learn a solo routine or perform a solo workout. Historically, students have trained from reading treatises, books and articles. Then later, we see students learning through watching films and videos. Today, they can record themselves forming these movements and send the footage to their teachers for critique. For an even more interactive service, the student can be engaged in a live streaming video call. All of this can form part of a student's education when they're training in a system that's intended for combative application or involves generating impact of some sort. However, in these instances, it should not be seen as a full or even partial replacement for teaching in person. It is reasonable to say that the theory side of martial arts can be learnt as part of a correspondence course. After all, this is the basis for open university and many other types of valid course. It is when we come to the practical side to teaching that matters, 
are not so straightforward. Simply sending a video of any activity a student is doing, especially something requiring resistance or pressure testing, cannot be properly verified by a long-distance teacher. The teacher needs to be present in person. Another issue that should be raised at this stage regarding direct online training is the age of the students involved. All correspondence with my students under the age of 18 is done through their parents. I would caution against any teacher running a direct online course with a minor, and I would caution any parent or child from becoming involved with such a course. Online videos are great for providing workouts. I use them all the time to mix up my own routines and to stop me from becoming insular in my own training. Indeed, I hope to be producing my own in the future. I give an online coaching advice and run programs to clients. My own clients are provided with links to many recommended teaching videos and are urged to do their own research online between classes. There are some truly excellent martial arts apps out there that can really assist with a person's overall training. I offer my online virtual training as a service, but with a strong caveat that it should be viewed as supplemental training. Video correspondence, whether it's a live feed or recorded content, can provide a useful but limited method for learning. My next question comes from the ever astute Gretchen Carlson. Just in case there's any confusion, this is THE Gretchen Carlson of the Martial Arts Journeys podcast, and not a less well-known political namesake. Gretchen's insight into martial arts is a real joy to listen to. She suffers no fools and isn't afraid to tackle topics many others shy away from. Gretchen, who is a talented writer and martial arts teacher, asked me, how do you write a book? When I was a child, I was always creating my own books, and the process was pure stream of consciousness. I see my daughter doing that now, and I love it. I guess that is why Angela Carter features on my list of favourite fictional writers. However, I'm not sure if this is how I will ever write again. Going by how I wrote my first four published books and the six books I'm working on now, I would say my method is an odd mixture of chaos and order. Because my non-fiction work began with interviews, reviews, articles and essays, I'm more comfortable with initially adopting this format. I hit a certain topic and write about it, then I write about another topic. Eventually, I have a set of short pieces and I start assembling them in some sort of order. This is where the real book writing comes in for me. Everything now is about linking all the essays into one cohesive whole. Having certain restrictions in place can be very helpful. Deadlines, clear objectives and even approximate word counts can provide useful boundaries to keep everything together and to get the work finished. My approach to writing might be roughly compared to some of my approaches to teaching. I like quarrying material and then I like sculpting the material and I see them as two very different processes. My third question comes from Peter Jones of Cajun Rue Jiu Jitsu. Peter is a keen examiner of many different sides to the martial arts and has a keen desire to keep things moving in a progressive direction. This year, one of the highlights of my teaching was having the privilege of being invited by Peter to teach at his class. I taught a small version of my When Parents Aren't Around Child Self-Protection seminar and also a Vagabond Warriors seminar. Peter has challenged me to define MMA. Has MMA, asked Peter, become a martial art in and of itself, i.e. rather than mixed martial arts, with the accent being on mixed, is it just now MMA? Mixed martial arts is the generally accepted term for a type of combat sport. The rule set has come to define a rough system. That much is fair to say. However, that system is still based on several distinct types of martial art. The cross-training element remains prevalent in MMA. Although there are MMA classes that attempt to teach the system as dictated by the rules, all serious mixed martial artists make cross-training a regular part of their work. They all learn boxing, Muay Thai, wrestling and submission grappling as individual systems in addition to combining them into the integrated sport. 
Learning the components exemplifies the virtues of attribute training. It's remarkable how much can be learned when different drivers, emphasizes, rules and conditions are added. I argue that modern gloves boxing has improved punching variety, refinement, speed, power, footwork, upper body mobility and the skill to knock an opponent out. Thousands of years of bare knuckle boxing has not yielded evidence of such progress. However, by training in glove boxing, many a street fighter, bare knuckle boxer and mixed martial artist has gained these benefits. Likewise, the integrated form of MMA often brings in elements that are not readily found in any of the component parts. MMA cannot really be defined as a style, but I think the rapidly developing and varied sport can claim ownership of the title. When the average person says they want to learn MMA, they're wanting to train in an art or sport that resembles what they've seen in the Ultimate Fighting Championship and similar sporting events. MMA can and does feature martial artists who use techniques from a wide range of different martial arts, but anyone who's got anywhere in the sport has a firm understanding of fighting within the three ranges, stand-up, clinch and ground. Although it might be technically correct, it's misleading for someone to say they're teaching mixed martial arts if they're just teaching general cross-training, or a mixture of martial arts that do not focus on these three ranges and their integration. Next up, we have Branko Funder. Branko has recently engaged me in some very interesting discussions regarding martial arts training and culture. He's exactly the sort of person I hope my writing would reach. His intelligent understanding and willingness to challenge information is what critical thinking in martial arts is all about. Branko's question is as follows. Could you please make suggestions as to how a martial arts club that is primarily sporting competition focused could start to incorporate more self-protection without upsetting those who love the competition aspect? As a concept, I would explain that the dynamic and objective of the two are very different. I would offer self-protection training as a self-contained course rather than as an integrated aspect. I've tried the latter, but it gets more confusing rather than upsetting to students. If I don't teach a client or student self-protection first, I avoid any discussions regarding the practical applications of their skills. If I do, then I will occasionally explain the difference. If I'm teaching the competition aspect as a form of attribute training, then I will always end a particular course and a particular sport with a lesson that looks at the application of certain aspects from the sport to self-defence. If the student is specifically training cross-training, such as when they're on a Vagabond Warriors course or seminar, we might explore such training methods as the switch. This is the type of training where students change from one dynamic to another. The dynamic is not so much decided by rules, but by objective. The sporting dynamic is a consensual duel. It's a symmetrical fight that relies on to-and-fro techniques, tactics and strategies. The self-defense dynamic is an asymmetrical fight between a person trying to commit an assault and another person countering that assault, either to effect an arrest or to escape. The key is to find objectives and to state your point clearly. That way, no one is misled. We move on to Jay Harrison, who used to train with me at my Coventry class. Great to see Jay's continued support and useful commentary on the Club Carmera Martial Arts page. Jay was always an enthusiastic student and trained hard at Coventry. He's hit me with a triple header in the questions department, so I'd better get on with them. Firstly, how do you deal with a taller, larger, stronger and more skilled in stand-up opponent? What art would you focus on? Should it be grappling or the KO? I think the first thing we need to decide before answering this question is what is the context? Now, I could have plain asked Jay this question when he first kindly posted it online, but I'm going to use it as an excuse to discuss two possible contexts and then some further variations within one of those contexts. So, are we talking about self-protection or sport? If the former, what level of threat? High risk, medium risk or low risk? 
Prior to answering, I think it's important to say that there are no certainties, much less guarantees, when it comes to self-defence fighting. No one art has all the answers and no one range is 100% fail-safe for everyone. Doing what you're best at and your enemy is least good at is usually the best policy, but this is not always easy to gauge within the split-second chaos of an assault. Environments can always factor in immensely. As a rule, I might make the point that the ground is a place best avoided, but this might not be the case if you're trying to restrain someone or you're fighting on a particularly unstable surface, like a sandy beach. If this is a high-risk situation, I would always advise striking whenever possible. Striking in the form of the preemptive strike with constant forward pressure. I appreciate the range problems, but strike whatever comes towards you and keep on going until you're out of immediate danger. If you opt for grappling, the chances are that the fight will be prolonged and other variables will enter the mix, including weapons and more attackers. Furthermore, if you're beating someone in a grappling situation, they can hold on to you to allow for their support to have a sitting target. If this is a medium or low risk situation, then your options might be a bit broader. Grappling is the obvious choice in this instance as it allows an individual to restrain an enemy without having to harm them. However, you can ratchet matters up as the situation escalates. Gene Simcoe made this argument in his book No Rules Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Ned Beaumont makes the opposing argument that striking, in the form of Western boxing to be precise, is the easiest way to control and scale down. He gives the autobiographical account of a fight provided by ex-FBI agent G. Gordon Liddy, who was convicted and incarcerated for coordinating the infamous Watergate burglaries in 1972. Apparently when Liddy was tested by a fellow inmate, he used his boxing skills to keep his opponent at bay without seriously injuring him prior to a prison guard breaking up the fight. However, for the most part, I think Simcoe has the argument. Perhaps the best thing grappling can teach an individual is positional control. Although I have had a client report back to me that catching an abusive relative with a well-placed punch quickly ended their aggressive advances with an attitude adjustment rather than a concussion, most mid to low risk incidents that have been fed back to me involve restraining aggressive drunks and defending third parties with wrestling holds. If we're talking sport, I'm assuming we're discussing MMA. This really will be determined by your own main strength and your opponent's main weaknesses and what they are within the context of the actual fight. You'll find that fight strategy will be less to do with specific techniques or even ranges, but more to do with combat personalities. However, Certain physical factors might come into play. It's all well and good being a defensive fighter and a counter-puncher, but if your opponent is much larger than you, then it's likely that you'll be picked off. We note that shorter fighters often get labelled aggressive or brawlers and longer-limbed fighters get called technicians. This is largely down to the fact that shorter fighters are forced to close the distance on their taller opponents, and inevitably, they eat up a lot of strikes. Second question. Have you ever studied judo? Funnily enough, during the time Jay trained with me at Coventry, we were using the Coventry Judo Club. However, I've not trained specifically in Judo for an extended period of time. My first official martial arts learning experience came in the form of a five-day course in Judo I did when I was nine years old. One of my lasting regrets was that I didn't continue and didn't properly revisit martial arts again until I was 13. I've studied with teachers who have a lot of experience in Judo and I've been exposed to it in that way. Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is an offshoot of Judo and I trained in that art both in Gi and No-Gi for several years in addition to other grappling sports and systems. I've had a Judo black belt employ me to help prepare him for Niwaza in an upcoming tournament, which was an interesting challenge. However, in essence, my formal training in Judo is quite low. This is no reflection on my respect for this excellent martial arts, sport and system. My informal experience with Judoka and my outside observations of the art are generally very positive. 
And finally from Jay, how do you utilise your time management skills so effectively? Do you have a strict daily routine? My training time management was born out of necessity. Because I had a hectic life due to my time on the zoo and the simple fact that everywhere was a long distance to travel, I needed to prioritise. I had to decide what my training objective was and then decide how relative a certain area was to that objective. That is how I came up with my hierarchy of training. My overall time management goes through phases. I remember once trying to manage a busy office single-handedly with my newborn daughter in a pram next to me. When I explained to one long-time work colleague what I was doing, she asked, how do you cope? My honest answer was that I didn't. I had to compromise, and that compromised whatever I was doing. It's very hard to get balances right, and there have been times when I've neglected things which have cost me. I've made some bad decisions, often got distracted, overly focused on the wrong thing, and have even been guilty of laziness. At the moment, I'm very happy with how things are moving, and I think I have all the plates spinning. But I think I've learnt my lesson hard not to become complacent, and to not discount the unknown. I long liked the Stephen Covey idea of dividing everything up into four quadrants. A lot of Covey's material might now be put under the dubious self-help and motivational category. For example, his overly simplistic anti-compromise buzzword idea of win-win. Please see my aforementioned baby in the office anecdote. Sadly, life is a complicated thing that none of us really understand on any level, and I'm always distrustful of anything that offers certainty. On this subject, I have to say that quite a few of Kobe's critics poisoned the well of his material by citing his prominent religious work. This was not something I was aware of when I was first exposed to his most famous books, which were written in a very secular fashion. It's fair to say that it's easy to separate his Mormon teachings from his other material, which appears pretty universal in its execution. Covey's four-quadrant strategy, for example, is sensible and I have had some small success with their application. These time management quadrants consist of activities that can be labelled in order of priority as urgent and important, not urgent but important, urgent but not important, and finally, not urgent and not important. Quadrant 1 can be defined as problems. Quadrant 2 can be defined as quality time. Quadrant 3 can be defined as distractions. Quadrant 4 can be defined as time wasting. Quadrant 1 can never be ignored, but allowing it to grow leads to burnout. It is what is known as management by crisis. Therefore, the plan is to reduce Quadrant 1 by giving more time to Quadrant 2. Quality time moves you closer to your goals, whatever they might be in your career, personal life or health. In order to get more quality time, you need to steal time from the other two quadrants. Say no more to the distractions, which might consist of other people trying to sap your time or throw you off track to benefit their own agendas, or deciding against doing something that might seem interesting but isn't attached firmly enough to your current goal. Discipline yourself against extended periods of listlessness, frivolous and unnecessary activities. Another thing worth noting about the four quadrants idea that also applies to my training time management is the concept of having a compass. This is a great metaphor for deciding what is attached to your goal. Use it to test the validity of whatever you're doing. Virtually anything you do might count in one of the four quadrants. It is its justification that defines its category. For example, rest might be a necessity. If you're worn out, worked into the ground and have missed too much sleep, you will have to rest in order to survive. That's a quadrant one activity. If your rest is a managed period of time you have set aside in order to allow you to recover more efficiently, then it is a quadrant two activity. If you're taking a rest because an overly needy energy vampire wants you to share their break with them when you know you have something more productive to do, then it becomes a quadrant three activity. Finally, overlong periods of rest that can only honestly be defined as laziness are quadrant four activities. I would like to emphasise that I'm no expert in this field. Routines appear to be a good answer to organising life, 
but the true discipline is the ability to be able to break from the routine and then go back to it again and again. This year's festive tradition, the annual family fight. Long ago, the many peoples of the Western Hemisphere noticed that there was a regular cycle in their very hard lives where everything got a lot harder. The nights drew in to the point that very little remained of the day and the weather became very cold and harsh. Driven by a fear of this pattern that made everything seem so much worse and often had tragic consequences, these people decided to do something that would bind them all closer together in mutual support. In the minds of many, these gatherings, with their accompanying ceremonies, would bring back the warmth of the sun and mitigate the harshness of the winter solstice. Perhaps, deep within the instincts of this tribal species of animal, there was the collective knowledge that such events would help raise the community spirit. And so traditions were born. Amongst these traditions was the feeling that this was a time of togetherness. The family is the most immediate and ancient of tribes. To this day, there remains the tradition of pulling together the various strands of a family to celebrate whatever this annual occasion is supposed to mean to them. And so, individuals that have grown apart or spent most of the year avoiding each other feel a tribal duty to spend at least one day together. This is where personality clashes that have never been resolved might resurface. This is where sibling rivalry might be reignited. This is where the extended family may be the direct or indirect catalyst for trouble as invisible tribal barriers are somehow breached. Ridiculously high and one-sided expectations are met with disproportionate disappointment up and down the generations. Warped views of history and poisonous volumes of alcohol infuse discussions. The tradition of Christmas family gatherings spawned its own twisted yet equally predictable ceremony. The annual family fight. In many cases, I believe that Christmas family reunions should be embraced, and in other cases, they are probably better avoided. My empathy is with those who feel an obligation to attend or hold a Christmas family get-together, knowing that it's likely tensions will be strained. I am not going to question your judgment. For whatever reason, you've made the decision that despite your differences with a certain family member or their extended family member, you are still going to attend the family get-together. Maybe this is for the benefit of someone who deserves to feel the love of their nearest and dearest around them. Perhaps you're doing it for your children or grandchildren, or someone else's children or grandchildren, or the parents or grandparents themselves. It doesn't matter. You are overriding self-protection advice and knowingly entering the lion's den. Many clients have come to me with problems that stem from their family. I knew one guy who even ended up fighting a bullying father at a family gathering. There are children who dread such occasions because they have to face off against territorial cousins. This is before I move on to those who feel a need to step in as a peacemaker, and this might entail literally intervening in a physical fight. For the physical side, I refer you back to my answer to Jay Harrison's question regarding my advice on handling mid- and low-level threats. Family fight situations typically, although not always, fall into this category. However, if you feel your life or the life of loved ones are in danger, the judgment call is yours as always. Families can be particularly difficult to handle for even the most seasoned professional. I've known individuals that regularly handle drunken thugs in a nightclub, arrest hardened criminals or kill enemy soldiers with detached efficiency, yet they go to pieces when the family row starts. The boundaries are difficult to reset in family environments. Old habits have often formed over a lifetime. Recognition of these old habits might be the first step to helping mitigate these situations. 
Perhaps the first piece of advice I can offer the individual who dreads the family row is to do your best not to be the instigator. Use every tool at your disposal to avert the situation. Likewise, do not bite. Resist the digs and prompts like a pro. If someone is going to treat you with a similar level of contempt as an enemy, treat them with the same level of professionalism. Identify the familiar behaviour patterns and take charge by switching the direction. Be very aware of the alcohol present. If you're going to be feasting with your enemy, take a tip from the ancients and don't be the side that gets drunk. If you are the intervener, then you might need to be do a bit of rearrangement. Recruit fellow peacemakers to best plan to reduce the likelihood of trouble occurring. This all seems like a lot, but as whoever makes the Christmas Day lunch will tell you, Christmas can be hard work. Speaking of fighting families, I'd like to mention a family that fights together on the same side. Don't forget to check out people I like to think of as my extended family of martial art podcasters are all welcome to me into the audio digital fold this year. It's not difficult to recommend the material as I'm as much a fan as I am a colleague of their content. So let's hear it for Ian Abernethy, Lee Sims, Gretchen Carlson, Chris Wilder, Sensei Ando and T.W. Smith. Great work guys. I'm again teaching a double seminar in March 2019 at the Blackwater Leisure Centre, Malden, Essex in the UK. The first two hours will be part of my When Parents Aren't Around Children's Self-Protection Programme starting at 11am and the last three hours starting at 1.30pm will be part of my Vagabond Warriors Martial Arts Cross Training Programme. I hope to see some of you there. Please book your tickets through Lee Mullen of Kru Practical Karate. I'm very honoured to be invited to teach for Lee's club who has kindly opened its doors to anyone interested in attending. I no longer teach regular classes, so this is an opportunity for those who live a bit too far afield to attend my private lessons to experience the Club Chimera martial arts approach. Links are in the show notes to this episode. For that holiday read, my free martial arts ebooks are all available on Amazon Kindle. That's Mordred's Victory and Other Martial Mutterings, a collection of essays. I wrote several martial arts magazines and also online from the early 2000s up until 2014, all re-edited and revised for the Kindle edition. Then there's When Parents Aren't Around, which is my self-protection book for young teenagers and children, and my recent Wrong Foo, which is the prequel to my six-volume Bullshit Zoo and the Fight to Make Martial Arts Work. If you want to show your appreciation for the content on these podcasts or the books, or just want to send me a Christmas present, then I'll be very grateful for a kind review. Please follow me and Club Chimera on Twitter, Facebook and YouTube, as well as the website clubchimera.com. There's new content going up there on a regular basis with loads planned for next year. That's it for the festive edition of Club Chimera Martial Arts Podcast. I'll be answering more questions in the next show coming up very soon. For now, I'd like to wish you all a very merry Saturnalia, a joyful Newtonmas, a wondrous Christmas and a very happy winter or summer solstice. Thanks for listening.